everyone. You are probably familiar with the adage, thoughts lead to words, words lead to actions, actions become habits, and habits are our lives. It all starts with our thoughts. That's our topic today. What are the deliberate, intentional thought processes of decision makers of small and mid-sized government contractors that drive successful results? How do they arrive at and execute successful strategies? And how do some otherwise high-potential small businesses get derailed? This can be a complex topic given the variety of businesses and business models of federal contractors and the vastness of the federal marketplace. I reached out to Marty O'Neill, Managing Director of Chesapeake Corporate Advisors, to help me cut through the complexity and find patterns of thinking that lead to financial success that others can emulate. Welcome, Marty. Thank you, Shirley. It's just good to be with you. Well, it's good to have you today. Marty, tell our audience a little about yourself and Chesapeake Corporate Advisors. Sure. Chesapeake Corporate Advisors is a boutique corporate advisory firm, and we've been serving investor-owned or closely held growth companies in the middle market since 2005. We're headquartered in the very cool Natty Bow Tower in Baltimore City, and we provide a collaborative, holistic approach to serving clients in this mid-Atlantic region. Now, for small and middle market companies looking to create business value, uh, that's generally with the help of our strategy services. And for those same companies looking to realize that value through a merger or an acquisition or other transaction, we work with them and we guide them through a process with the goal of helping them achieve both their, their business and personal financial goals. I lead the firm's technology and government contracting practice. I've been in the shoes of small and lower middle market business owners. I've, I've founded and run small and mid-market companies, and I've run business units for, for very large government contractors. That's why I'm so excited about today's conversation, Marty. We both have started, grown, and sold businesses and have learned a lot through those experiences. To help illustrate our points in today's discussion, we have created two fictional companies, both innovation-driven, and will follow the founders' thinking through the inevitable challenges of growing their businesses in the highly regulated but opportunity-rich federal marketplace. Marty, describe Company A. Well, Company A started out as a niche software development company. They had individual competencies in the latest development approaches, as well as a deep understanding of their customer base. They had one founder, and for years they were stable but stagnant, and, and then exploded in this five-year compounded annual growth rate of over 40%. They went from $11 million in annual revenues to over $50 million. The founder still works very hard. That's, that's just her nature. But she's able to lead a balanced life and is reasonably secure that the value that's been created is on very solid footing. And Company B, which we'll define as the not-so-successful company, is a cybersecurity company that was started 10 years ago by two very smart engineers who used to work in the intelligence community. They were very good employees, so when they started their small business, they obtained a socioeconomic certification and contracted themselves back to their previous employer. The founders are working 60-hour work weeks, running the business, and billing for their time. 
they have reached about $8 million in annual revenue, but desire to reach $32 million in annual revenue and sell their business to a larger firm, but they're stuck. Marty, our topic is about the thinking processes of the owners. Let's start with the owners' thoughts about planning. How did the founders of Company A, which grew from $11 million to $50 million, think about and approach planning? Well, frankly, Company A really did not have a written or well-communicated plan for the first few years of their existence. During their stable but stagnant period, it was really run as an extension of the CEO's lifestyle. In fact, she used to joke that it was a period of sloth, not growth. But she realized she'd grown comfortable with this approach and that her company was far, far short of that original vision of making a dent in the marketplace and then changing the lives of her employees. So she worked very hard to develop a clarity of vision that was indeed impressive. And that clear vision was then translated into specific factors that would need to be addressed in order to fill that vision. She called those her critical success factors. Goals were established around those critical success factors, and each goal then had a strategy and an action plan. The plans were clear. Uh, The staff was assigned to implement these goals. Everybody in the company knew about these goals, and they bought into the new approach. And over the next five years, they repeated this process on an annual basis. They held folks accountable, and they ended up with that compounded annual growth rate of 40% that we mentioned earlier. And by contrast, Company B, which is stuck at $8 million, didn't prioritize planning. They prioritized delivery of services and keeping customers happy. That's how they justify not planning. They're just too busy hiring people and overseeing their work. At least, that's what they're telling themselves, that they don't have time to stop and think. Marty, do you run into this attitude? Well, often we see principles that confuse uh, activity with progress. Many small companies get caught up in a hero mentality where a small number of staff, maybe the founders, but generally a tiny constituent group, ends up coming to the rescue at the last minute. Now, this has all sorts of negative consequences. The heroes begin to resent the constant pressure they're under. The company does not build depth of leadership, and instead of an accountable, performance-based culture, A culture of wait for the hero develops. It's nice to have heroes around, but reliance on them is not a really sound business practice. In the business that I'm in now, as we look to value and assess companies, we look for repeatable processes, repeatable systems that are going to ensure consistency in revenue and earnings. Without thinking about and planning to purposefully and thoughtfully grow your business, you're also more likely not to understand or to be out of sync with your partner's vision for the company. There are many legitimate paths forward, but the owners must decide on one. These can be contentious topics if there's not a shared vision and philosophy. For example, when and how do you build out your leadership team? How did Company A get this right? Well, they made a bold, a bold, bold move. Uh, The CEO realized that she might not have the leadership team to realize her vision, so they crafted a structure they felt was market and employee-focused, and then asked the top six leaders to reapply for those new roles. They ended up promoting two folks and asking two managers to step back into client work. 
Now, it turns out that this really reinvigorated the entire leadership team, and the employee base had total confidence in the new team. But there is a word of caution here. This was indeed a bold move, but it was done with openness and transparency. Two of those demoted leaders were very well liked, but over time, including the leaders that were moved back into client work, everyone was really happy with the results. Now, Shirley, this got me thinking. You focus on business development, which many and or most, frankly, of all small and mid-sized government contractors struggle with. What do you think separates successful businesses from those that struggle? Those who are successful know not only how to develop new business, but they understand what makes them better than the competition, and they know who in the company is responsible for bringing in new business. Not understanding these three factors, meaning your value proposition, how to get new business, and who should be doing it, prevents many high-potential businesses from growing. This erroneous thinking is particularly evident if the owners have technical backgrounds, which is the case in both of our fictitious companies. One partner may be more inclined to do business development, but may resent the pressure and resent not being able to do the technical work that they have enjoyed. Company B fell into that trap. The president, who was good at developing relationships, initially agreed to focus more on business development, while her partner would focus on service delivery. However, because she was able to develop trusting relationships with her customers, they wanted her to deliver, too, and she couldn't say no. So she would work on projects she had brought in, and then business development would slip, which the company felt later. They suffered typical peaks and valleys in their revenue. And, of course, there was a lot of blaming going on. Marty, how did Company A overcome this tendency? The culture of Company A evolved. and evolved to embrace skills that were once considered less important. The CEO was quite technical, and she was able to win business for the firm, but she realized that to fulfill her vision, you know, there had to be a repeatable business development process to generate leads, a repeatable process to source opportunities, and a repeatable process to write winning proposals. Well, in short, she learned to embrace these repeatable business development processes and learned to let go of some of the details that would go into every bid. Now, to add to that, the company did invest in market research, business development planning, uh, which included partnerships, new systems, different processes, joint ventures, and really everything a, a business development team would need to keep that pipeline filled and their probability of winning on target. There's also a philosophy around business development that reflects mindset. Company B, the cybersecurity company, although a small business, insisted on only going after prime contracts. That's not a bad strategy when you're looking for contracts of $4 million or under within the socioeconomic set-aside programs, but it can be very limiting in the scope of work, the number of opportunities, and the exposure to new agencies. Companies desiring to scale take more calculated risk, team more often, and seek opportunities in the full and open marketplace. When I talk to my client CEOs about growth, I address these issues. Which growth strategies are they comfortable with? How much risk can they tolerate? Do they understand the trade-offs? Are they prepared to invest in growth? How do they feel about teaming? 
what has been their experience with teaming, which ones have worked, and what were the characteristics of those successful relationships that we might replicate. And then there's the critical issue of building a leadership team and delegating authority to others. At some point, if owners are successful, they will have taken the business as far as they can themselves, and it is then time to hire others to help them lead and grow the company. Now, this is distinguished from hiring direct reports that you just give tasks to. Now comes the thinking around scaling the business which involves not only recruiting people, but implementing repeatable processes and systems and delivering consistently. But before we get into that, Marty, let's take a break. I'm talking to Marty O'Neill, Managing Director of Chesapeake Corporate Advisors, about the thinking that distinguishes federal contractors that grow and create market value from those who struggle. When we return, we'll talk about how successful contractors think about building their leadership teams. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This Growth Masters Federal presentation is hosted by Shirley Colliger, president and founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and build market value by developing and executing customized, data-driven business development playbooks, building efficient information systems, and creating high-performing BD teams. Utilizing the proprietary Davey Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to increase their company's value by achieving profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scaletomarket.com to learn more about the Davey Growth Framework and how it can be instrumental in helping you grow your federal contracting business. And now back to Shirley's discussion with Marty O'Neill, Managing Director of Chesapeake Corporate Advisors, on the strategic thinking of successful small and mid-market federal contractors working to grow their GovCon business. Welcome back. Marty, before the break, I mentioned that at some point in the life cycle of a company, it is necessary to build and delegate to a leadership team. Not all small to mid-sized businesses can navigate this critical stage of growth. How should business owners think about adding key people to their companies? Well, what's the first thing any of us do when when we're making a consumer-based choice? We begin by doing the research. And if you're in a challenging labor market and you're not paying a ton of attention to your workplace brand, I think you're really missing a huge opportunity. That candidate experience in a a tight labor market, it's critical to having your choice of top talent, whether that talent is is technical, leadership, management, or, or all of them. Building a leadership team is about finding people that share your vision, they have the knowledge, they have the skills, and they have the abilities to implement that vision And frankly, you know you've hit a home run when these same leaders can not only execute, but they can improve the operation and add to that shared vision. Many organizations use assessment tools like DISC or Myers-Briggs or StrengthFinder. And one of these tools should be in every company's toolkit. But we have to keep in mind that they're only tools. Once you get people settled in a leadership role, you'll need to spend an equal amount of time on developing the behaviors that are going to lead to performance that you've agreed to. So workplace brand, agreement on shared visions, 
making sure they can fit your team and culture, and then motivating and encouraging specific behaviors, which are going to lead to the performance that you can then measure. That is good advice, Marty. One of the hardest positions to add to your team is business development folks. There comes a time in the life cycle of small businesses that the owners can no longer do everything, developing the business and delivering the business. A maturation step is to hire one or more BD professionals. It's high risk because many small businesses don't have a business development plan, systems, or discipline in place, yet they expect an outsider to magically make new business happen. The owners put their faith in someone who, say, has 20 years of experience and professes to know a lot of people. Then they, the owners, sit back and wring their hands, hoping that the person that they hired knows what they're doing. Six months pass, one year passes, the pipeline is a pipe dream. Proposals are going out the door, but no contracts have landed. And there's no measurement in place to determine if the company is going in the right direction. This really breaks my heart because the company has spent sometimes $150,000 to $200,000 with nothing to show for it. This is where research, planning, systems, and discipline processes come into play. Now, we're going to be talking about systems and processes in a minute, but I would like to hear from you, Marty, about the critical role of strategic thinking and planning in positioning a company to grow. Well, often lower and middle market companies are led, sometimes owned, by small teams, say one to three people. And it's really just so important that there's an alignment among the principles and that there's a clarity of vision. Now, their personal vision and the company's vision need to be clear, it needs to be aligned, and it needs to be well communicated. A strategic thinking exercise or a strategic planning process is going to identify the market segments that they want to be in, It's going to identify the whole product offering if they're a product-based company. It's going to identify the whole service offering if they're a service-based company. And these are areas that the company can identify, they can win the business in those markets, and then they can deliver over and over and over again. And it's this over and over part, Shirley, that often gets neglected. You have to go from winning one piece of business to consistently winning and executing your share of business. And that brings great value to a company. And planning for business development, taking a data-driven approach to the federal marketplace is essential. I'm astonished at how many contractors do not invest the time to research and analyze federal buying patterns. They blindly respond to public solicitations. Their probability of winning a contract that way is about 10% which is not financially sustainable, given how expensive developing proposals are. The next area of thinking that CEOs must concentrate on to grow their businesses is to execute that strategic plan. Now we're talking about the necessity of developing and implementing repeatable processes and systems. At CCA, when we see a company that can consistently deliver revenue and earnings results, month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year, we know that's going to be a value driver for their business. Consistent and repeatable are the key here. Now, many entrepreneurs bristle at the thought of processes and systems, but the discipline in a business development process from sourcing to bidding separates those companies that stagnate with those that continue to reach their performance targets. 
And Marty, I have seen a different mindset in growth-oriented CEOs regarding investing in planning people, processes, and systems. What were your observations of Company A? Well, I think of it as being intentional. And let's talk about the mind, body, and soul of a company. Now, Company A thought of the mind as the leadership of the company and how the individual leaders had to improve along the way. And that included their ability to lead, their ability to manage, their ability to communicate and plan. Company A thought of the body in this mind-body-soul analogy as the core processes, the core systems for their organization. They invested in processes and systems if they were core to the success of the business and if they contributed to value creation for that company. Company A also viewed the soul as the company's culture. And they did everything possible to make it an attractive place to join. And once you're on board, a place where you could grow and excel. Now, in contrast, Company B, or should I say one of the owners of Company B, was loath to spend money. He is extraordinarily frugal, insisting that he and his business partner take on increasing responsibilities and workloads rather than investing in people, technologies, or processes. They're each working 60-plus hours a week, and frankly, they're headed for a wall. I've seen it before. Tempers flare, customer service suffers, employees are frustrated, and eventually the owners resent the business they own. They feel trapped. How did Company A manage to develop a budget for growth? What, What was their thinking? Well, I'll compare it to what I see a lot in the marketplace. There are a number of companies that are challenged at finding talented staff in a tight labor market, and they often end up overpaying in base salary. And again, we see this quite often, and are left with low gross margins. Now, this forces their hand on spending less on any fringe items or or other things that can make the organization more attractive in the marketplace. So knowing what you should be paying for your workforce Developing incentive-based systems that reward results is just key. Company A instituted something called entrepreneurial hours, which is a way for management to track the effort of non-revenue-generating tasks. They implemented a synthetic stock program, which was performance-based, and they developed a discretionary bonus program to encourage additional effort, and that developed a culture of go-getters and overachievers. I love it. All of these decisions reflect the owner's mindset. In my experience, developing a leadership team and implementing systems and processes, including planning and budgeting for growth, are a manifestation of the owner's wisdom coupled with industry best practices. It requires them to think honestly about what worked in the past and what did not, and to admit that they don't know it all, which is hard. The rare ability to have the self-confidence to start a business coupled with an admission of fallibility and a willingness to learn continuously, in my opinion, are the keys to long-term success. Leverage others, listen, measure, hold people accountable, and pivot. And I would add to that, Shirley, that, that companies do take on the attributes of their leaders. Gregarious, outgoing, trusting, and sharing CEOs often find themselves leading a workforce that's very similar. Insecure, information-hoarding leaders who have a hard time trusting their staff and workforce 
they're going to find they reap what they sow. It's just human nature. I agree 100%. Do you have any final thoughts to share, Marty? Well, I did want to say thank you for inviting me to talk about growth. As a young leader, I only thought of growing fast. Over time, I've realized that even though growth is a necessity for business, as we know, if we're not growing to some extent, we're, we're dying. But to be successful, a company's growth trajectory has to be aligned with the vision of the principles. It has to be supported by that next generation leadership that really understands and buys into that vision. It has to be reinforced with strategies, goals, and objectives, and then encased in a culture of ownership and performance. You are so right. Marty, thank you for joining me today for this important discussion. It was my pleasure, Shirley. Folks, if you would like to learn more about Marty O'Neill or Chesapeake Corporate Advisors, go to ccabalt.com. Or you can reach out to us here at Skelta Market, and we'll make sure you're connected. This is Shirley Collier, president of Skelta Market and host of the Growth Masters Federal Podcast, signing off for now. As we close, I want to thank you for joining us today and encourage you to connect with me on LinkedIn and visit our website, that's skeletomarket.com, with the number two in the middle, where you will find our library of podcasts, webcasts, white papers, my blog, and other links and resources. While there, please leave us a comment or suggestion so we can stay focused on what's important to you. We'll see you next time.